What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Andy Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both in their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. One of the things that makes this show possible is that we're in the middle of an explosion in the power of the individual. You can set out on your own, build something cool, get rich, and change your life, quite frankly, without really needing a whole bunch of other people to help you out or a whole bunch of investors to invest in what you're doing because there's so many tools now that just give you more leverage than ever. I mean, you can do this without even knowing how to code. And if you do know how to code and you know where to look and which tools to use, you just have insane amounts of power and leverage. My guest today, Premek Hoyetsky, is a great example of this. He's embracing artificial intelligence in ways that I don't think most people realize are possible for the solo indie hacker. And hearing a story just gets me really excited about how much you can get done as a solo founder and what the future holds for indie hackers. Do you think AI is overhyped, underhyped, or it's at the right level of hype? So, so I think it's both in the sense that it's overhyped because it's still not doing everything like it's supposed to do, like it's presented in media right now, especially if you look at popular media. But it can definitely do much more than we think in general that it can do. So I think AI is still it's in its early days. It only started like 12 years ago, maybe eight years ago with 2012 and like some competitions around computer vision. And then it's gaining this momentum when we have better hardware, more data, so actually, it's not hyped enough for what it will be able to do in a couple of years. Yeah, I figured you would say it was underhyped because you are super into AI and you're doing some really cool stuff. From my perspective, AI has always been kind of a big company game. It's, I think AI, I think Google, I think Facebook opening up these super expensive research labs and hiring PhDs and spending like tens of millions of dollars to collect terabytes of data to train their models. And then here you are, a solo founder, indie hacker. You're not spending a ton of money. You're not taking a ton of time. And so far, you've been able to use AI to your advantage in a way that's pretty good. So just briefly here, when did you start your company, Contentize, and how much revenue is it generating? Right. So so basically, I started Contentize in January 2020. So this year, nine months ago, and I'm basically generating between four to $5,000 per month. Most of that is still coming from the actually the content we generate. So that's like a funny model because we generate so much content on our platform that we are able to monetize some of that through advertisements, sponsorships, affiliate links. And then some of the some of the revenue is coming from paying customers on the platform, but that's still a minority. And I want to flip that and actually be have more of the income, more of the revenue being generated by the SaaS platform itself. What's cool about making five grand a month is that, as you said, you just started this year. So that's pretty good. And you're not doing this from Warsaw, Poland, I believe. And I just looked it up this morning. Your cost of living there is three times cheaper than it would be in a place like New York City or San Francisco, which is really the cool thing about being an indie hacker. You can just live somewhere cheap, but you're doing business online. You're earning dollars as if you're living in the richest place on earth. So I imagine you've got to feel pretty good about how things have gone so far. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's super interesting also for indie hackers from that perspective, because I think it's much easier to actually start working with someone remotely. And there's an expectation even that you, you work remotely because, you know, like we're in a, I mean, the pandemic, maybe there's a second wave, maybe there, there's not. But in general, like 
probably things won't go to normal. And that's a good bet for, for the uh, near future because there's no vaccine inside. And looking at statistics in various places, it's probably going to, to be much more spread. So taking that into account, building a team anywhere you live is very doable and you can hire people from around the world. So also your hiring costs are coming down because you can look for people in places where you, ha- you have more potential buying power with your dollar, like Warsaw, but also like going even east, like Ukraine, or going even more east, like Russia, China, anything like that. So there's like really a lot of potential for that right now, growing your like digital online business. Yeah, and this is what I look for when I'm looking for people to interview, when I'm looking for things to talk about, like what are the new trends, the new platforms, the new technology that's enabling solo founders and individuals to do much more than they ever could before? And nowadays, as you're saying, like it's easy cool. to use all these tools to basically build a business no matter where you live. You don't need to live in Silicon Valley. You don't need access to a ton of investors. You don't need super expensive tech. Like You could do this from any place on earth. You could be a digital nomad living in Bali, charging people hundreds of dollars a month for your SaaS product. And I think the other thing you're doing that's particularly high leverage that fewer people have caught on to, besides the remote working thing, is just using AI to your advantage. And people are sleeping on AI, I think, because it just seems so inaccessible and so expensive. But it turns out that's actually not quite true anymore, or maybe it won't be true in a few years. And you've done some cool stuff that I think we're going to get into in more detail, but just briefly to give people an idea you know, about some of the cool things you're doing with AI. Number one, you've got this company, Petacrunch. And it's an AI right. media company. And you're interviewing founders. How big is the team there at Petacrunch? And how many founders are you interviewing exactly? Yeah, so basically the team is uh, one person and that's me. And the rest of the team is actually AI generated. So they're, they're like AI journalists and they're fully scripted, uh, contacting the founders on behalf of themselves. And basically they managed to interview over 1000 founders in like three months. So that's like a huge volume of interviews done over email uh, with founders from around the world. That's crazy. Yeah. So so really, really, that that's an exciting part. And this is like, I started doing PetaCrunch even before Contentize. And then Contentize came as said like the next level on actually doing the platform, which can help you leverage content ideas. But yeah, PetaCrunch is still working. You can still go to petacrunch.com. And right now it's working as a side business for me because I'm no longer actively using those algorithms to scout for the new startups to take them on. But rather, but you can still like buy an interview, like buy a press release from PetaCrunch and just uh, have this publicity there. But yeah, really, PetaCrunch was, uh, was the starting point for me to go into Contentize and build the whole SaaS platform to generate content at scale. Yeah. I love writing. I love automating. I love optimizing. So that was my uh, dream come true. It's a perfect combination of skills for what you're doing. You're a writer. You are a productivity nerd. You're into AI. And now yeah. you're doing AI-generated content. And you're kind of putting me to shame because I've been interviewing founders for like five years, four years at Indie Hackers. And I've done like 500 interviews on the website. And you did a, a thousand interviews with your AI journalists in just three months. So... We're going to talk about that. We have to. Now, your current business, Contentize, is also similarly impressive. How many writers do you have employed at Contentize and how many articles and distinct pieces of content are you putting out every month? That's a great question. So I have not, no writers or almost none because I sometimes take contractors to generate articles for me just for comparison. So I have only developers and those people are helping me write up to like 
100,000 articles per month at, at the what? current rate. <laughs> so it's something absurd. 100,000 articles a month. Yeah. I thought you were going to say 1,000 yeah. or something. Okay, so mind-blowing stuff. You got no writers on staff. And we're going to get into this. We're going to get into how you do this. But maybe the best place for us to start is back where you got your start. I believe you were getting your PhD, you are in academia, and that's where you discovered AI for the first time. Right. So, so I was doing PhD in mathematics. Uh, so that wasn't that far from artificial intelligence. Then I was uh, I went to Oxford for a research fellowship. And at some point I decided that, okay, I want to quit academia and go into business and then change from pure mathematics to machine learning. Basically because I was fed up with academia at that point. I wanted to have more impact on the world, be able to have something tangible, have some, some some faster feedback loop on what I'm doing, not having to wait like years basically to see the outcome of the research that I'm doing, but basically be able to, you know, do something and then within weeks, within months or even faster sometimes, be able to see what I created and how well it's performing. So that was my uh, my thinking when it comes to my character. I mean, characterologically, I think being an entrepreneur is just a cool thing. And going from mathematics to machine learning was also natural because I love automating and optimizing stuff. So being this productivity nerd, I really wanted to do something more on a, in that domain. And coding was super natural in that respect. So that was a couple of years ago. I went from, from academia and I started starting my first startups. Both of them failed. I had two startups prior to Computize, prior to PetaCrunch, and they failed for, di- for different reasons, but both were, like, both were actually a great way to learn about being an entrepreneur. Most people, I think, find it very difficult when they've got a lot of momentum and skills going in one direction and it's safe and they understand it to just throw all that in the trash can and say, you know what, I'm going to be a completely different thing. Going from academia where you've got, you know, you're working on your PhD, you've got other friends, I can only assume, who are also working on their PhD, you've got the social circle. Do people think you're crazy to leave and try to start a company? Oh, yeah, totally. I think it's super hard because especially academia is such a bubble that if you go out of academia, it means that you're some kind of a loser <laughs> for not getting another job in academia. You know, it's like a really a bubble. So it's super hard to actually go out for the first two years after going and deciding that I want to go out, out of academia. And I was really battling my thoughts about whether I'm a loser or not for going out and whether I should stay. But then I was so hard convinced that staying in academia would make me miserable in the long run that I just had to quit. And still, that was like a continuous process because it wasn't like one day I go, that's it, stop, and I I quit. But it was like, okay, maybe let's do less research and try to find like a consulting gig, try to get into business. So this process of switching from academia to business actually took me like three years to go like fully, like right now I'm like fully entrepreneur, 100%, but that took me literally three years after deciding that I want to quit. So it's definitely not easy. And only right now, I don't feel like a loser going to being an entrepreneur and choosing that path. But back then, you know, I was like super insecure about switching from this well-defined career that I had and could have going for like decades Mm -hmm. because you have this very linear path when you do research, become a postdoc, become a professor at a university, and then go on, teach others. Then you're 60, 70, basically you have a tenure track job. Well, and that's it. I mean, 
super interesting intellectually because you you keep on uh, thinking about very interesting problems, but in the end, your career is very linear. You you can't do really crazy things. And I wanted something more. I mean, I, that wasn't that appealing to me. I mean, I was doing that for 30 years of my life. And then I decided that, okay, let's let's try something different. Yeah. And you can certainly do lots of crazy, innovative things as a tech founder. But you, you got to hop from one bubble oh, into another because yeah. tech is its own sort of bubble. What did you do to come up with the idea for your first company? I mean, you're out on your own. You never started a company before. What are the first steps that you take? Yeah. So actually, I was doing those different consulting gigs for like, you know, trying to help others with AI. And at some point, one of my colleagues uh, over drinks, he offered me a stake in his company that, I mean, it wasn't formed at the time. He wanted to have someone from more technical background, him being a businessman before, to do something together. So what we did was we formed a company and basically that was the story of Brink.ai. And our goal, goal was to build a last mile delivery platform, something like Postmates or Glovo to deliver products within a city within 90 minutes. So you could shop something, buy something online and we could de- deliver that for you. Or for example, take your envelope from one place to another, deliver your keys that you've forgotten from, from your work something like that. Basically, we underestimated the costs involved in the startup. That was our, for both of us, that was our first technological startup. And we really miscalculated how much we should pay drivers, how Mm. much should go to marketing. And it's super, like those kind of businesses, like which are Uber-like, are very capital intensive. And we weren't prepared for that. And we actually were bootstrapping everything. So we, we couldn't make it, even though the growth was pretty nice. How long did it take you to figure out that this was too expensive and it wasn't going to work? Basically a year. So after one year, we were running out of cash and we decided to just pack things and that, that's it. Meaning that, you know, like we were on the slope. Uh, we had like a couple of weeks of a runway, uh, but we didn't have any investor. Uh, we're not really advanced talking to investors. And we decided that we, we don't know whether we can make it work. With the, and we decided that, okay, that's it. And how did that feel? I mean, you had all this pressure on your shoulders having just quit your job, your sort of research path in academia, and now your first company fails after a year. You have really not much to show for it. It felt bad in the beginning, but after we decided we actually have, it was like taking the weight of your chest uh, in, a, in a sense, because first of all, we had the experience. It was really great learning curve that we had with the startup. And I wasn't expecting much. I mean, I was expecting that to be kind of like the going to the business school. Like I don't, I don't, I don't believe really in like being able to learn entrepreneurship at the university, and you really have to become an entrepreneur to learn that. So I was looking at this experience as kind of forming experience of becoming a founder, becoming a CTO, CEO, and that was and that was that. So I wasn't that unhappy about that happening. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I was pretty sad for some for some time. I think one of the interesting things about your first business is that until you actually start something, you have no idea what it's going to be like. You can read all these stories in magazines or listen to podcasts about founders and come away with almost any impression. You know, you might think, "Oh, I've got to be an expert. I can never do this." You might think, "Oh, it's so easy. I'm going to knock it out of the park with my first business." But until you actually try, you don't really, you know, all you have are thoughts and hypotheses for what it's going to be like. You don't really know. What would you say surprised you the most about being a founder for the first time? 
that it's not really about brainstorming new ideas. I mean, it's really you have to get your hands dirty and, for example, either start driving around or like really you don't have really customer customer support in the beginning. So you really have to respond to every single mail that ca- that's coming your way. And there are ma- many different layers of problems that are appearing either from customers, something, that, so for example, if something doesn't work on the platform, it's your responsibility to fix it uh, as soon as possible, especially that clients are paying for the experience for the platform. So probably this, uh, that was like head-on meeting with uh, customers, customer service, and building the whole customer experience, that was really, that was really a struggle in the beginning. And I think that's, that's the hardest part in building any customer-facing application. Okay, so here you are. You've learned a few lessons. You've got some experience under your belt. You're, you're kind of sad about your company not succeeding, but you're not down and out, obviously, because you started a second company after that. Tell me about that process. How'd you come up with the idea and how'd you get started? So the second one was uh, board technology, and the idea was that we use quantum computing to optimize processes in logistics and transportation. Very amb- ambitious. <laughs> yeah. So, so actually, that was like super deep tech. We that was, that was super fun. We actually did the company with a different colleague of mine in Toronto. We went through Creative Destruction Lab. That's like a well-known accelerator in Canada. It's also the only one with this quantum computing path. So we were super happy to actually be there. Uh, we spent a couple of months in Toronto. So that was going good. We were we like secured fa- pre-seed funding. But there were two problems back then. So, so the idea, we actually brainstormed the idea before. My co-founder was a lawyer. He already had like a one small contract with uh, one of the companies in Poland about developing something in a space. Uh, so it's still, it, it was natural in a way that we started brainstorming. And there was this idea for the company that we could create something in quantum computing space. To some extent, I was also too naive about the technical difficulty of the problem. So I said yes very quickly <laughs> uh, there, and <laughs> to, to the, the whole thing because I wanted to do like different different things. But I was very challenging later on, especially. I mean, I have this PhD in mathematics, but still learning about quantum physics and how quantum computer works, that was really challenging. And I was super happy that in the end, like I learned a lot about quantum physics and quantum computing. The idea came naturally. We moved to Toronto at some point, but there was this problem that first of all, we were super early to the market and it was super hard to convince an enterprise to actually buy our solution and actually trust us to find something like a solution. Uh, So the the selling process was going very slow. On the other hand, we started having many differences in how we want to operate, how we want to go with the company with my co-founder. So those were two main reasons that actually we decided to split. I mean, there was not enough track record to progress. So I decided, so there was like a natural decision that, okay, we should stop here. We, we, we can't really make much more of, of it right now. So I'm, I'm just curious about this, this product, actually, because you're doing quantum computing. And I think practical quantum computers aren't even a thing yet. So what was it that you were selling to companies or, or trying to sell to companies? There are no quantum computers which are better than classical computers yet, but you can already experiment. So our sales pitch was basically that you should prepare for quantum computers right now and experiment with them and build some kind of applications on top of them, which you can do right now because 
later on when, when the real quantum computers come mm. in, you'll be just left out of the game because it will be like already too late. You, you won't be able to acquire talent as well. I mean, because, you know, like this is a super small niche and there are not so many talented players being able to, for, to like, for example, to build quantum machine learning algorithms for your application. So these things exist. And that was our sales pitch. So we were actually selling to R&D departments of like large corporations. And that was super hard sell, especially in the beginning. Yeah, I bet. So we, yeah, we, we, that was like B2B, but B2 enterprise, really. So you're having trouble selling this like prototypical quantum computer. You start having co-founder issues, which a lot of people don't realize, but are often the number one reason why companies die because your co-founders don't see eye to eye, you disagree, and you try to go in different directions, which obviously doesn't work when you're a fledgling company that's having trouble with sales. And usually, you know, when a company's doing really well and you're crushing it and making a ton of money, you and your co-founders get along splendidly because it's kind of obvious what yeah. you should be doing. But when, you know, there's cracks in the surface and your product isn't selling the way that you wanted and it's harder to build than you thought it would be and it's taking longer and you're running out of money, I think that's when the, the strife really starts to show up. Yeah, it's a it's a like a real test of your of your relation basically with with, with your co-founder. So we didn't pass this test, uh, this relationship test uh, with my co-founder. Yeah, and this is like one of the main reasons. I mean, the second main reason is probably lack of capital and underestimating costs. So I went through both of them with my first startup and then the second one. Yeah, but founding a good co-founder is like. A crucial thing if you want to have one because so that's a funny thing so for example right now i'm like raising seed round for uh, content ties i'm talking with a lot of investors and i had like a couple of calls when this is like a minority but i had a couple of calls when actually one of the investors asked me about okay do you want to find a co-founder like do you need someone from the like more sales background and at this stage i'm just saying no, I'm fine soloing the whole thing because it's more interesting from my perspective and i think i can do it and if there's any lack of uh, skills that I will have on board, then I'm happy to hire someone and maybe give them like a small portion of equity, but not on like the co-founder level. So there's still, I think there's, there's still this thinking that you should have a co-founder and the best startups are the startups run by two people or more, but it, maybe it's not true. I mean, I think the statistics are that both are equally successful in the end. Like you, you have solo founders, which are very successful. Yeah, my sort of hierarchy is, if you can have a co-founder and you know that you and this person have complementary skills and a history of being able to get through conflict, then that is the best situation. Right below that, rather than having a co-founder who you've never worked with before and you're not sure how you can handle challenges, you, it's better just be a solo founder. If that means you've got to shrink the scope of your ambitions, you should just shrink the scope. But I think nowadays it's easier and more, I think, higher leverage than ever to be a solo founder just because there's so many tools and things are so cheap. So it's not as much of a disadvantage as it was back when people were first starting to write about this kind of stuff 10, 20 years ago. And then, you know, below that, all the way at the bottom is like working with a co-founder just because you heard you should, but you guys have never worked together. You're not tried and true. You haven't tested your relationship and your company is going to be like the only, you know, the first and true test. And often that doesn't work out very well. And this has kind of been the arc of my career as a founder as well. I always started things with co-founders. And sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't. But with indie hackers, I just worked by myself. And then later on, I brought on my brother as kind of like a late co-founder. And I know we have years of conflict resolution because we're twins and we fought all the time growing up. So like, if we disagree about something, like we know we can resolve it because we've done it a million times before. And I've seen the same pattern with a lot of other companies like Stripe, founded by two brothers. I don't think that's a coincidence. So I have a brother. And from my perspective... 
it's also scary to some extent because I, you know, I trust him and I think like he's an extremely talented person. But on the other hand, I'm scared that, you know, that will influence our family relations mm. and maybe make it worse. So weren't you scared of that? Like, how was your thinking process going there? I've fought with my brother for so many years that it's like, there are no fights that we could have that are going to influence our relationship. So maybe <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Like, if you and your family have had a lot of conflict, maybe you're a little bit more sure. But if you haven't, you've always had like just like a peachy relationship, then maybe you don't want to risk that. But for me, it was, it was pretty clear, like, we can get over anything. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that as well. I mean, we can probably get over anything. But, you know, like, having family dinner and then awkward silence because actually someone <laughs> fucked up something on the, on the business side and yeah uh what's been interesting during covid actually is my brother's in brooklyn i'm in seattle at the moment my mom is in atlanta we're all kind of separate and i have no plans to like fly to atlanta and see my mom and like get covid in the airport and like get her sick or anything like that but she just misses us and so my brother and i have these daily zoom calls and she'll just dial in she always asks like what's the what's the zoom url today and she'll just like listen to us talking so there's good and there's bad, you know, but I think it's cool to kind of bring the family together. And it's, I'm just a big proponent of just stacking things in your life. You know, there's all these articles you can read online about like, okay, you know, what are you going to do in your life? Are you going to have a fulfilling career? Are you going to have good relationships with your friends? Are you going to pursue hobbies? Are you going to spend time with your family? Like, what are you going to do? You don't have time for all of it. And I think actually you do have time for all of it if you can find clever ways to combine two or more things. And so for me, Andy Hackers is very much a fulfilling career. It's family time in a way because I'm with my brother and now my mom all the time. And it is a hobby because it's not just one thing. I get to spend a lot of time writing code, doing design, hosting a podcast. And I think almost anyone running a business, if you design it from the ground up, you know, in terms of choosing what you're going to work on and who you're going to work with, you can kind of stack a few of these things. And in you know, the same eight hours, eight hours a day, instead of just getting one of these boxes checked, you can get two or three of these boxes checked and live just a better life. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of working with family if you think you can make it happen. That's actually a great thought. I mean, I, I've never thought about that way, but definitely, you know, like I like stacking things together in the sense of like trying to work on something which I'm passionate about and finding projects that I will like. So even if I fail in the end, mm. I will have the pleasure of going through the process and enjoying the whole process instead of thinking that, okay, it's really shit right now, but maybe in, in like two years, it will be something fun which is, I think, super important when it comes to entrepreneurship because there will be many failures along the way and you should expect them to happen over and over again. Right. And unless you do something which is exciting, you will be pretty miserable otherwise. Yeah, and it, apparently that's what you did because you, you failed at your first two companies and yet you weren't discouraged. You kept going. So you must have been yeah. having like a good time along the way. I think it's something with my character that I even like like when it gets worse and you get tested because at least something's happening. Uh, so I had this amazing uh, chat with my friend who's uh, like a young uh, film director. He's also like super ambitious uh, uh, here in Warsaw. And he was saying that he has this motto recently done, the worse it gets, the better it gets as well. So like <laughs> he likes things turning, like right now he manages the crew of like 40 people and he's like 27 right now. Yeah. And it's like, from my perspective, it's like complete chaos because, you know, like film crews probably are not as organized as startups or like companies where everyone, but basically you have actors, you have some kind of copywriters and like having everyone fill their role is super challenging. I like this as well in being an entrepreneur that you have the ability to actually test your skills in battle, 
it's really like going to war and then you practice before you, you can practice before for example by reading books by doing some small exercises uh, like writing a business plan or whatever it is but in the end you have to test yourself in battle and that battle is the market in the end everything is decided by the market and by other people by customers who either like your product or they don't you've been in battle a couple times you've tested the market didn't particularly go well, but you're still determined. You're enjoying yourself despite the hardships. What are some of the lessons that you took with you after the failure of your second company and to going into your third company? Right. So probably the most uh, crucial thing is that patience is key. And I have to really think long term when it comes to building the product, getting the customers. The other thing is uh, I'm executing better on ideas. I think in the end, entrepreneurship is really about executing on ideas. And thanks to the previous failures, I'm able to execute on ideas much quicker than before. I have this feedback loop much shorter. I'm able to build apps, build certain features super quickly. And I think that's crucial in the end because one thing is brainstorming and thinking what can what can be done next but in the end someone has to execute on the idea it's better be quick because the more like the quicker you are probably the better you can position yourself on the market that's the crucial finding uh, from the two previous failures another one is i can probably do solo uh, solo with the with the entrepreneurial route and i'm fine doing that and the third one is I'm not scared of failures. I mean, if content ties were to fail, I'm fine with that in the sense that I know I can find new ideas, new markets, new products that I can invest my time and my money in. And I'd be okay with that. I really should focus on enjoying the process and being the thing, the things that compound in the sense that they compound assets, they compound knowledge. Uh, so I can, even after the failure or success, I can, come out stronger than before. And I think that's the key. So you've got this mindset that you're in where you're like, you know, the idea is important, but execution is what matters. And after these two failures, you realize you're not afraid to fail. And you also realize that you're comfortable being a solo founder and you don't necessarily need to work with anybody else, which I can understand after having this, this blow up fight right. <laughs> with your second co-founder. How do you take all these lessons and move forward to eventually start Petacrunch and contentize? Yeah, so, so basically I was thinking what to do next, basically in March 2019. That was the moment when board technology ceased to exist. We decided that we closed everything. And I took some uh, months off just to go on holidays and think about stuff. But then I decided that I want to do something in content because I was always a huge fan of literature. I was always reading a lot, writing a lot. So I have published five books. One of them... It's almost entirely generated by AI. So that was done later on, beginning of this year. But I was basically doing a lot of writing before coming to Contentize. And my idea was that in the first place, I want to build a tool for myself to boost my own performance. And while I was doing that, I first tested that on Petacrunch. That was the first initial project where I was thinking like, how can I automate media industry? How I can make something purely autonomous in the media market. And then I went on to thinking that, okay, I can build this platform where actually this kind of algorithm can be shared with other people and they can use it as well to create content. Basically, that was a year later. So walk me through exactly what that looked like, how you set it up, just so we can have like an idea in our minds of what it looks like to build an AI-powered company as an indie hacker. 
So after my previous business failed, this one with quantum computers, in the first place, I wanted to just talk with other founders about especially the one who raised a lot of capital or had like great product or something like that. How did they do that? Like how, what's the recipe? What's the, like, what did they did right? What, what, what went wrong? And like, what kind of advice they have? That was the initial idea. And then like I had, after thinking a little bit about it, I decided, okay, maybe I can do it at scale and ask like 10,000 founders at the same time. That went into being a peta crunch actually. So I did it for myself to actually learn about how do you build a business. That's almost exactly why I started Indie Hackers, to be honest. It's like, I really want to understand what other people know that I don't know. Let me just go talk to all the most interesting, successful founders and say, hey, this is an interview. But really, I just want to, I want to mine you for information and figure out how you came up with your idea, how you made your money, how you find your first customers. But you did it at a way bigger scale than I did. I think I've interviewed like 500 founders on the website in the last four years. You interviewed more than that in just a couple of months. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, that's the power of AI. But I'm sure that, you know, like they are not as high quality as what you did on the platform because basically, to some extent, those were like early days. It's mostly scripted conversations, but I I managed to get really interesting people on the platform. It wasn't me who was doing all the talking. It was this AI journalist who were contacting people and they really managed to get to talk with CEOs of startups who raised like $100 million or something like that. So I won't name names here, uh, but you can you can check them up on the platform. And it's really cool. So I, I mean, I learned a lot in that process. And that's what led me to contentize in the end. Explain how that AI works, because I'm just, just curious. Like, who does it choose to reach out to? How does it find them? Like, what does it send them? And what point do you come in and, and do some human intervention, if at all? Sure. That was actually super simple because you basically were scraping the data of the startups who got funded in a particular amount. Uh, For me, it was between $1 million to $100 million and sending them emails. That's it. And then you had like, if you got a response, you you send them the questions. That's it. And what part did your AI do? All of that? All of that. No, all of that was done, done by AI. I only intervened when someone asks some non-standard question, like in the beginning, someone asked one of the AI journalists, are you AI? <laughs> and <laughs> prove me that you're not, and I'm happy to answer your questions. And the AI was requested to tell a joke about, <laughs> like, about anything. So that was actually the human intervention. I went online, I searched for a joke, <laughs> and basically I emailed this person this joke. <laughs> And that was it. And then AI took over from that place. (laughs) Wow. So tricky. And so then you would just send them a a bunch of questions, I guess, and they would answer your questions and you'd publish the interview. Yeah. And unfortunately, the last part was also needed the human intervention. And that was all of the interviews were in different formatting, uh, in different styles. So I had to, you know, like to make them more appealing visually, I have to, I, I had to do it myself, unfortunately. So that was the painful part. I think that's the beauty of AI, though, because I think people think of AI as kind of this all or nothing thing. You know, if your computer can't do all of it, it might as well not do any of it. But that's not true. As a founder, if someone could take off half of your workload, you know, you click a button and suddenly this bot is going on Crunchbase, finding all these founders who got funding, emailing them, initiating an interview request, and you're only intervening just to like polish it up at the end or like, you know, to (laughs) tell people jokes when they want proof that it's not an AI, that saves you a tremendous amount of work. And it's more than worth it, even though the AI can't do 100% of it by itself. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same with content ties. Like, it's not like we're not promising you get a perfect article on whatever topic you, you, you think about. But what we promise is that you're going to save a lot of time, whatever you, you're writing, because you can just submit a headline, you can submit the whole article, and we summarize that for you. And it's like that with any kind of AI right now, because we don't really have any kind of like perfect AI doing everything for you. It's mostly about automating some small stuff so that you can be more creative yourself. And this is how I view AI in the end. Like this is, AI is just a tool to boost your productivity so that you can be more productive by not focusing on repetitive, boring, tedious work you would have to do every day otherwise. So why not keep working on that? I mean, it seems like it was working. You're much more efficient than dopes like me who are doing interviews by hand. Why not keep working on Petacrunch and make that your main thing? No, actually, it's still working. So th- what I what I decided to do is actually I just didn't want to uh, spend my days editing the end uh, end interviews. So right now you can still go on the platform, but actually I switched to the like the pricing model. So actually, PetaCrunch is making some money because you can submit your interview for like ninety nine dollars and be featured on the platform after some approval. So no, it's 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 fully working actually. It's something in the back of my head because I'm mostly thinking about content ties, but from time to time, I'm just thinking, you know, like how can I um, automate even more of Peta Crunch so that it's fully autonomous? Like it wouldn't require anything from me and it would be just like fully working media service. <laughs> so basically, I would like to have Tech Crunch, but done by AI, no human intervention. That sounds super fascinating. Like I, that's one of the coolest business ideas I've ever heard. I don't, I don't know how good these AI journalists can be. You know, like maybe they can do interviews. I don't know if they can write entire stories, but maybe well, the with... whole point is actually that this is what we're trying to do with content ties. In the end, content ties is the missing part in the fully autonomous beta crunch. That's the. This is like the huge subject is uh, the whole synthetic media landscape. And by synthetic media, I mean exactly media which are run by AI or algorithms, scripts, just no human intervention in, in, the, in the middle. So that can, like synthetic media is, for example, this articles generated by AI, but also Twitter bots and many other things that you can think of. For example, videos can be also fully generated by AI. They are just not as good yet as those recorded by humans. But this is another direction that synthetic media is taking. So when you started Contentize, was that where your head was at? I want to turn Petacrunch into this full media organization and I just need this one missing link. So I need to go build that first and then maybe come back to Petacrunch. Yep, yep. That was my motivation back then. And then doing that, I remarked that actually maybe I can make the whole platform public and actually have other people use the platform. And then basically this is what happened and I'm happy interacting with other people talking about content ties because I'm getting a lot of ideas from customers, uh, users. It's really great. I couldn't be able to do it all by myself. So tell me about like the first month with content ties. You come up with the idea. You're like, I'm going to build an even more advanced AI system that you can give it a prompt and it'll write an article for you. What's the first thing you do after that? Exactly. So the first step after I had like the idea, I drew all the dashboards that I wanted to have. I, I drew the architecture infrastructure that I would like to put in place. And basically, I contacted my friend who was a great Python backend developer to do the backend stuff for me. 
and that was it. That was that took us like we we coded together some parts uh, that took us basically two months to do it. It was great. It wasn't as good as I thought in the end, in the sense of like how UI and UX design and everything. But then I decided, okay, it's cool enough to actually keep working on that. I have a lot of fun doing that. Uh, so I started looking for contractors, which could take me to the next level. And what exactly was it that you had built with your developer? So that was a platform. That was a platform working on the cloud. But basically, the only thing you could do was you have a place to put your prompt to put your headline or like a short sentence, click on generate and get a text out of that. So I could say like, you know, 10 ways to come up with business ideas. I would write that in a text box and click generate. And then your AI would write an article that's like 10 ways to come yeah. up with business ideas. Yep. Yep. Basically that, like a draft for the text. So with that version, we got to like 100 users. So definitely there was some interest to the platform. It was growing super slow and I was thinking on ways to make it more appealing, you know, like UX design, product design, and like how to make it much better. Mm. Uh, because I, I know that I have a technology in place to make it really appealing, but the whole product side was what's, what was missing. So I went on and started looking for people to do front-end for me, design more things on the back-end, uh, add different machine learning models and stuff like that. So I decided that, okay, I can grow it to something much bigger by myself. And it was a good decision. Like in the end, like we, we finished the, the second iteration in June, 2020. So after three months and basically from then on, we had this great growth of users. So AI, you know, to my mind is a little bit intimidating because it just seems like something that's super expensive to do. It seems like you need to have a lot of experts, a lot of PhDs, and then it's also going to take a ton of time to get it right. And yet here you were with like a, a small scrappy team, somehow bootstrapping this yeah. and funding yourself and somehow getting it done in three months. How are you able to be so efficient and so productive as just such a small team and, and in so little time? Well, to be honest, it's part of my own expertise. So I didn't have to look for someone who'd design the whole infrastructure. I did it myself. And then I needed people for very particular pieces that I know that either I can't do myself or maybe I can do myself, but it would take me like a couple of weeks. And if I get an expert, he could do it in like, I don't know, like one week on like a couple of days or something like that. So I was able to be, I, I was able to optimize my own time and resources thanks to the fact that I'm able to understand the, the, all the pieces coming into the platform. So I was lucky with that. I mean, I didn't have to take any black boxes. I could understand every single algorithm that I was using. And in the worst case, I could code myself the whole thing. So that was the, that was the, on, the, on the good side. I mean, I'm feeling confident that I could do the whole thing myself. So even if I couldn't find a person to do it, I could always do that myself. That was a great thing because that gave me a lot of freedom to pursue the whole thing. And would you have been able to do this by yourself, let's say like two or three years ago, or are there new tools and platforms that are making what you did this year possible? No, well, I, I couldn't do that two years ago because of the, of the breakthroughs in uh, AI machine learning and what's new on the market. And I couldn't do that for another reason because I wasn't that good in programming back then than I am right now. I mean, I'm, I'm still learning because, you know, like computer science is definitely... It's always learning. There's always something new. There's new research coming. So you have to, get to, you have to learn more. But no, definitely content types couldn't uh, exist like a couple of years ago. So it's cool that 
the timing is really perfect as well. So give me a sense of some of these breakthroughs, because I think this is kind of what's enabling indie hackers to do things that they weren't able to do before. And unless, you know, we are ex-PhDs who have our sort of ear to the floor of what's going on in AI, like we don't know about these breakthroughs. So what's new and what's possible for an indie hacker to do today that they couldn't do a couple of years back? Right. So, so if you don't have this technical background, then still you can do a lot of things because you have a lot of open source models or like models which are readily available from like IBM, Google, Microsoft, Amazon. They all have models which are easy to connect to through API. And that really drives down all the costs because the cost of, for example, if I were to say, like, say I want to build an application for recognizing cat faces or maybe recognizing a particular dress and then searching for that dress on the internet. Right now with like open source tools from one of those big uh, tech companies, you could probably do that under one or $2,000 if you can just hire people on like Fiverr or Upwork to do particular bits uh, of the technical stuff for you. So it really drove the, the, the whole cost of the of building the solution down. And it's really great. So the first thing is that technology is much cheaper to do because there are so many ready-to-use off-the-shelf components. And on the other hand, because of the whole world going now right now to the remote work, it's super easy to find people on Upwork or Fiverr to actually do that for you. So you can iterate very quickly on your ideas and it doesn't cost you much to do that. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating that it's not so much that you're trying to you know, build out an impressive team and compete with Google or Amazon or Facebook, but rather they're just releasing a lot of their work for free on the internet. And even if you don't understand it technically, you can hire someone who does and package it up and build like these solutions and bring them to people or industries that just don't have a lot of sophistication. You know, Maybe they're doing everything in an Excel spreadsheet, or maybe they're hiring people to just repeat a bunch of manual tasks, and you could you know, whip up a quick script and sell it to them for... 30 or 40 bucks a month that's going to enable them to just get a lot more done. Assuming you have the domain expertise to spot these problems and figure out the inefficiencies that companies are going through and and match them up with like the the right algorithm or the right model uh, with AI that can actually solve that problem. Yeah, definitely. Especially that there are many industries that are still using Excel spreadsheets as their main resource. And even without any technical background, you can be a broker for technologies connecting that, you know, like AI with particular domain. And if you're an expert in particular domain, like, I don't know, logistics, transportation, maritime, uh, whatever it is that it's your, your passion or your background, uh, your career background, then you can really find solutions which are easy to sell for a particular market. And I think that's great. I mean, that that's definitely doable for indie hackers to do it. Uh, if, for example, you're, uh, you have your corporate job, but you're, you, you have enough of that, you want to quit, then probably the easiest way is to look for ways how AI can automate some of the processes. And it's not even that hard because... It's mostly thinking in terms of processes and the things you want to automate because AI in the end is just a tool for automation. It's nothing, it's nothing magic, magical right now. But if you can find processes which are repetitive, tedious, boring, then you probably can call an AI uh, machine learning algorithm who will do that for you. And if you have no technical background, then probably the most practical advice would be 
think about this process, describe it well, and then start writing to different software houses, specializing in AI, data science, machine learning, asking them for a quote about particular solution that you have in mind. And then with that quote in mind, you actually can go back to these particular industries at the margin on top of that, like 20, 30%, and maybe start selling from that point on. And I think that's like the best way to build something technical without actually having any technical background at all. That's super fascinating. I want to get into more detail on that a little bit later because there's just so many different types of AI models and technologies that you can use to do different things. And I'm not sure everybody knows like what the options are. Like, What's the difference between a natural language processor and a recommendation engine and whatever else is out there? But before we get into that, I want to understand how you were able to basically finance what you were doing. Because you said you started this in January 2020, you started Contentize, and it wasn't until June 2020 that you had kind of your second iteration out, and which is, I, I can only right. assume, much better than the first, more accurate, more impressive. But you're hiring during this time, you're presumably surviving and eating and paying your rent during this time. How are you funding yourself and how are you making enough money to keep this operation going? Uh, yeah, so basically I have some savings, uh, so, so that was part of it. But also I was sustaining myself for consulting. I was able to freelance consulting. And when I was starting, I was consulting for up to like 20, uh, 20 hours per week. And it went down basically. So right now I am still uh, have some consulting projects, but they are not no more than like 5 to 10, we- 10 hours per week. So I'm thinking myself, you know, like I have this approach that whatever I make through consulting that goes to me and then whatever the company makes uh, through content, the, the subscription that actually gets reinvested into the company itself. So I had this lack of actually being able to, you know, like do, do things on the side with consulting. So I didn't have to quit any kind of a job, but maybe just reduce the amount of clients that I have uh, to focus full time and contentize. And thanks to like the, the growing revenue of contentize and all the content generated, I was able to cut on the hours and cut on the clients that I didn't need anymore uh, for my consulting business. I love that approach of actually working a job or doing consulting. So you're generating revenue. And then in the early days, not just saying, okay, well, I've got this job and I'm going to squeeze you know, my company into like nights and weekends or whatever few hours I have remaining. You're like, no, no, I'm going to take the money from my job and I'm going to use that to hire people. I'm going to take the money from my savings. I'm going to use that to hire people so I can grow my company faster. And so then you're not really trading anything off. Yeah, you don't have a ton of time to work on your business, but you're generating all this money from your job and now you're pouring that into actually making your business grow faster. And I think most people don't do that. They either do one extreme or the other. They either quit their job cold turkey and say, okay, I'm going to burn through all of my savings so I have no income anymore. And that's like super scary. I've been there. It's pretty stressful and it sucks if it doesn't work out. Or other people yeah. do the other extreme, which is like, oh, I'm not going to quit my job, but I'm also not going to take any risk whatsoever. I'm not going to spend any money hiring anybody. I'm going to do it all by myself. And I think the sweet spot is exactly what you did. And especially if you have a consulting job, you can kind of gradually reduce the contracting and consulting work you're doing, you know, down to five days a week or four days a week or three days a week as your business ramps up its revenue and becomes more and more successful. So it's never really this huge risky thing. Yeah, I also think that's the best way. I mean, of course, it's not always possible that you can just simply reduce the amount of previous work, though sometimes definitely it is, especially right now, probably you can ask your uh, your boss, your employer about like reducing your time from like full time to part time, and maybe start with that. Uh, and I've heard like many stories about people doing that. 
just saying openly that they have something they work on a site and they want to take more time to do that. And I think that's a great approach as well. But definitely, if you're like a freelancer, then you can already start doing that. And you just can think about how much income you need each month and then reinvest everything else into your business. But I think that's the, that's the most tricky part because probably many people could do something like that, but it's super scary to actually invest your own money, yeah. uh, especially in like uncertain times, like global pandemic, uh, for example, uh, because, you know, like reinvesting in business, it's like you, you don't know whether you will take, have that back when or if at all, but it's the only thing in order to make money, you have to spend money. And that's the, the only way to make that work. So you have to spend either on building the product or marketing sales and whatever it is in order to make everything faster. Yeah. And even if you're not technically spending money, you're just investing time. Well, your time is money. The time you spend on your company could be yeah. time that you're working another job or doing contracting and getting paid. So I think that that insight is 100% true. You have to spend at least some money to make some money. And if you are currently working a job and actually continually earning money, it makes it much less scary to actually start investing and spending a little compared to quitting cold turkey. In your particular situation, Contentize started making money on its own, not from paying customers, but from basically you taking advantage of your own AI writing well before you had paying customers. What did that look like exactly? Even before Contentize, I already like started working on like some kind of a side income because of all the situations with startups failures. And then I just, you know, like I quit academia, so I didn't have any, like, the first startup and up to like probably the the middle of the second startup, I still had a position in academia, which was basically doing research. And that was fine because I still had a, a couple of research papers going in. So I had this super stable position and I could do startups because, you know, like even if I fail, I can go back to academia. After, after my second startup failed, I, I had like no, there's no way of going back to academia. I have no side income. So I, had to work on something more in order to feel more secure. And that something more actually started with Medium. Uh, so medium.com, my favorite blogging platform. I, I still like publishing a lot of me on Medium. And at, at some point, I like noted that you can turn on monetization and it works the same as it works on YouTube, mean, meaning that you get paid for how many views they are, how many people are actually engaging with your content. And uh, I started getting a couple of hundred dollars in the beginning and that was like mid 2019 so that kept me motivating in the in the first place i mean it wasn't enough to sustain myself but it was already enough to think about this as a direction and what to do next so i was developing my writing writing for others writing for myself uh, then i discovered affiliate marketing and that was a great discovery so this is this, this idea that actually you can promote some products put the links to this product and if somebody buy something for this link then you get paid some percentage of that so i was writing a lot about like data science books machine learning books different technological stuff and i just started putting those links not to be ordinary links but to be affiliate links uh, and suddenly my, my income grew to like over one thousand two thousand dollars in a short time and i said okay that that's great and i can keep on going and that was basically the start also of content dice so i was thinking to myself that if I can do it myself and reach the level of like $1,000 per month, then maybe if I start to employ AI and do like various content on like much larger scale, then maybe I can do much more than that. And how much more did you do than that with 
when you actually started employing AI to, to write content for you and, and put in affiliate links? The highest I got was probably $5,000 per one month when I got to, but then I was like fully focused on the content. And I took the decision to actually leave it as it is. So that started to fall off uh, actually, but then focus more on the platform because I, I felt like in the, lo- in the long run, I think I can make and generate more income from the actually the platform, the licenses, uh, right. and doing everything around content ties than the actual content. So you've got kind of like this fork in the road where it's like you can either generate a ton of content and try to make money from affiliate fees, which is cool and very innovative, yeah. but also probably not as big of an opportunity as building out this contentized platform. So other people could pay you a monthly fee or something to come and use your platform yeah. to generate whatever articles they want. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I decided that, you know, like I want to stay at this level of a couple thousand dollars per month with this affiliate links. And that's fine because that gives me freedom to reinvest all that into hiring people to like buying ads on Facebook or like whatever it is that needs to be done with business. Uh, and I don't have to worry about going through my savings and having nothing at the end. But then I decided that I don't want to develop more of that side because that also takes a lot of time. And uh, I just want to build a better product. And it, with better product, if content ties doesn't work well, I can always go back to that part. It's still fascinating to me, even though maybe it doesn't have as crazy of a potential as this other product you're building. But for a lot of people, a couple thousand dollars a month is super meaningful income. And the fact that for you, it's more or less like you've got an AI just doing it. Like, How much manual effort do you have to put in to these articles to keep generating a couple thousand dollars a month in revenue? Probably like five hours per week, basically, because I have to... I have to curate some of them and then I ha- for some of them I have to set up uh, set up also ads to make them more popular. Uh, so I would say like up to five hours per week R- right now. I mean, there was like more time to be put into that to create all those those digital assets. But right now to like actually sustain it at this level, it, it, it's not really that much of a time that I need, which is great. I mean, if you look that, at that from the perspective of like the lifestyle business, I definitely could go into that direction, meaning working like five to 10 hours per week and then drinking coffee, hanging out <laughs> with friends for playing video games for all the other time. But for me, I would be so uh, demoralized after like one month. I mean, I had this period in my life when I was trying to do something like that, but I, I just couldn't. I mean, I have, the, <laughs> I have like really hard work ethic and I had to work to feel fulfilled and happy with my life. So I can't do things like that. I think a lot of people hit that point and it's like a, it's like a checkpoint, you know. They want to get to this point where they feel stable and they feel supported and they feel like they have some sort of machine that's running that can generate income and they're not going to go broke and starve. But then once you get there, the same thing happens. You're like, "Okay, well this isn't really enough money or this isn't really as ambitious as I'd like to be or I do really want to spend my time working on things that are harder and challenging." And so you don't you don't really stop there. But still it's hard to get there for so many people. Walk me through an example of like what one of these articles looks like. You know, what's the process? Do you have to come up with a topic idea yourself or does the AI do that? And then, you know, how are you getting people to actually read these articles and click the affiliate links? Just what's the whole process look like? Yeah, so, so in the beginning that was like super manual in the sense that that was the the thing the pieces of advice that I would give myself. For for example, like what books do you have to read? as a data scientist and there there's a book for like each level whether you're like beginner intermediate so everything was about data science machine learning technology and that was working and still you can see that on my blog on medium uh, if you go there like most of the text that i'm writing i'm either writing myself of 
or with little extra help from AI to generate some of the drafts. Uh, but basically, I curate everything. But then to go on like with that on a massive scale, then basically what you have to do is you have to look at the keywords that people look for, but there's not enough content, and then try to provide that content. There, there are like services like Basumo or Ahrefs, and both of them, both of them, you are able to look for like what people are googling particular month, and then within the particular niche, uh, with, within particular region. And then you look at the questions people ask within the web browser. And basically, that's the title of the article that you want to write to have like the organic traffic coming to your website, coming to your blog post. So that's that's what we're currently doing in an automatic way. But there's definitely much more to be done. Again, like if I were to do it properly, this is like totally different business that would take full time job. And unfortunately, I can't do everything. And I had to decide what I what I need to do. Yeah. Uh, and I decided to go, you know, like go with content eyes so or go with be more on the content generation part rather than content research, content marketing right, part. Right. It's cool that you, you had a little foray into this because you're basically dogfooding your own product. You're getting to see what it's like to be a customer of Contentize and how you might be able to use Contentize from a customer's point of view to try to make money. But then you decided, okay, well, let's focus on the platform. What did you learn from using Contentize yourself to make money that informed how you built your product and how you would find and entice customers to try using it themselves? The most important thing I learned is that UX design is like super important. And unless the product is super intuitive and easy to use, nobody will use it. And for me, that was the last, like, it was super easy to check because often, like in the beginning, especially uh, content ice was already working on the cloud, but then still I was more involved with actually working with my own scripts in a, in Jupyter lab, Jupyter notebook. So I decided that it shouldn't be like that. I mean, if the product is to work, then it should be more appealing to actually work uh, work with Contentize than trying to code it yourself. And I was iterating on Contentize until it reached this point where actually right now I'm less working with my own code than with Contentize because it's much simpler to actually do everything with Contentize rather than to code it yourself. So that definitely that allowed me to you know like have this super short feedback loop because I didn't have to talk with anyone about what to change in Contentize to make it better or easier to use because I have myself, I had myself and I was able to ask myself like, is it enough or should I push even more? And I'm trying to be pretty transparent with myself, pretty open. So <laughs> I wasn't lying to myself about, oh, it's going great when it actually was absolutely awful. So I was like literally iterating very quickly. It's fascinating how much, how much of an advantage you get and how much more adoption you can get when you have this easy to use interface. There's another AI model out there that's super popular. And I think in part, it's just because it's so easy to use and it's, it's GPT-3. And so essentially, you just right. you know you get access to their API, you send them a prompt or a text, and it can be like almost any question or instructions using English. And it can generate like a whole wall of text for you that is almost indistinguishable from a human writing it. And this technology has been around for a while. Maybe it's not quite as good, but people just haven't used it because it's always been so hard to use. Like you have to set so much stuff up but now when it's just like so easy and it's just easy to use API, I think people are getting super creative. Peter Levels, I think he got access and built this thing called like Ideas AI. And like every day it generates a few new ideas using AI and you can upvote the best ideas. And it's got all these business and startup ideas that it's generating and people are applying it in all these new ways. So it makes sense to me that like with your business, figuring out how to like make the interface more intuitive and easier to use would increase your revenue and increase the number of people who are 
interested in, in using it and understanding like, okay, here's how I can use Contentize to get ahead in my business or to do something else that no one else is doing. Yeah, this is actually something I learned and I keep on learning is that it's not always about technology. It's often about like how you present the product, what's the product design. Uh, so this is something which, of course, Apple got really well because they don't produce the best laptops. Like they definitely like don't have the best components, but what they do really well is the whole experience of using a MacBook and how intuitive it is, how easy it is to use, how well performing is actually the software. And that's something super important to remember, especially for me as, you know, like coming from this technical background, I have this inner thinking of like building cool technology will actually solve all the problems. <laughs> We're actually, it's only halfway through or maybe even not halfway because technology itself is, it's nothing. Like it's just a tool that you can use well or not. And selling the, the thing or presenting the thing is actually even more important in the end. Like getting getting the technology to proper hands to make it really appealing to the particular audience you have in mind. This is the, the challenging part for me, but it's something that I keep on learning and this is really great to keep on iterating about and keep on iterating on product design. So where are you, you finding these customers? Because even if your product design ends up being super slick and it's great, most people don't know that you can generate a lot of content and articles and product descriptions or whatever with AI. And I, I think you probably have to do a lot of evangelizing and, and educating people and convincing them that like, hey, this is possible and this is like a new way of working. How are you actually finding customers for Contentize? So right now it's pretty much natural. So it's kind of funny because we generate so much content that actually we have organic reach plus social media. And we try to explain as much as possible how Contentize works, what natural language generation market looks like, and like what kind of tools you can use. So but it's like you said, it's all about educating potential users, clients. And I'm, I still believe that it's a long process. So, and we have just started, but this education process might happen that, you know, like uh, you will see one video of Contentize right now, maybe another one in like half a year, and then you come back to us like in one year and that's fine but ba basically it's like writing a lot about what you can do and how you can make your life easier by automating some parts of uh, the writing process and give me an example of like you know a customer or two you have who's actually using contentize and what they're using it for sure so for example there are many people in real estate using contentize to turn spreadsheets into actual plain english explanation so, for example, one person has a company which aggregates data about rent prices in the in the cities in the U.S. with like how those changes from week to week. What's the like hottest neighborhood in Chicago? Uh, what's what's trending in LA? And then he has this bunch of data, large spreadsheets. But in the end, his users uh, want to have like a short report. And this is what Contentize does. You can like quickly implement a template which would give you this summarization of the text uh, of what's, what's going on within like the particular city. Another example might be that, so there's, that's another, another uh, customer is a person is running a health lifestyle blog and basically she generates the blog posts so ha have a couple of headlines, have a couple of articles he wa she wants to base the whole text upon. And based on that, Contentize gives her like a draft of the text that she then modify and puts on the platform or on, on her website. 
Cool. So it's like a, a whole bunch of different use cases. Yeah, and that that to, to be honest, that's also problematic from my perspective because I don't know where exactly to focus my attention <laughs> on. Uh, <laughs> but it would be easier if that would be like one type of customer, like for example, only real estate or like only e-commerce because they're like also like a bunch of people from e-commerce or, or only like marketing people. In the end, it will probably boil down to me choosing again after which particular market I want to go because uh, you have to make some kind of a choice in order to make it easier. Yeah, that's the difficulty with building any sort of technology where you're enabling people to do things that they've never done before is suddenly there's all sorts of use cases and you just have this kind of like very generic lukewarm message that doesn't strongly appeal to any one group. So it's hard for it to resonate with people. I talked to Vlad Magdalene who runs Webflow and they're kind of the same situation where they're enabling people to build websites using this intuitive UI that they didn't have before. And people were building websites, obviously, for all sorts of different reasons. And so I think he yeah. eventually just like narrowed down to like three or four different target groups who seemed to be the, the, the heaviest users who got the most benefit from the product and just like built out landing pages and documentation and all sorts of resources for those three or four groups. And that kind of means excluding everybody else and not focusing on them. But I think it's important to kind of get that foothold in the beginning and then you can run with it. And I think, you know, a related concept here is that there's this book, Crossing the Chasm, which was super popular in the 90s. And I've talked about it before, but like, there's this idea of you got you know, the late adopters and you've got the early adopters. And at the very earliest edge of the early adopters, you have the innovators. And these are people who are often entrepreneurs themselves. And they're working on things where they really want to get ahead of everybody else. And they're visionaries. And so they're always on the lookout for anything that's new, anything that they can take advantage of that others aren't taking advantage of. And like they care a little bit less about the product being polished or you know full of bugs because you know that might be an advantage to them. Maybe that means that they can use Contentize before anyone else can use it, and they can you know start pumping out content and, and automating what they're up to well before anyone else. So I'm, I'm curious how many of your customers are in this camp. You know how many of your customers are indie hackers or people who are just way ahead of the curve and who want to take advantage of AI before other people do. I think mo- most of them for now. I mean, the definitely uh, people who are using uh, Contentize are visionaries to some uh, to, to some degree because it's not still it's not as easy as I would like it to be to get on the platform. There's still like a learning curve you have to go through, so you have to be determined to actually at least spend like half a half an hour on an hour learning all the possibilities within the platform to actually do something meaningful. So it's still definitely visionaries. And, but from my perspective, you know, that, that's exactly the goal of building the product, which is appealing to as wide audience as possible is trying to make it as simple as possible as well. So whenever you log in onto the platform for the first time, you right away know how to do things in a way that brings you value. And that's, I think that's super important. So bring, so it's literally about having product design, which is, great easy compelling um, compelling and easy like great to use in the end like that that's the most important thing so when i think about all these indie hackers trying to get ahead trying to start new things and i think about that in the intersection of ai there's really two different approaches that stand out and you're kind of doing both of them so one approach is you try to innovate you try to build some new ai solution that allows other people to take advantage of AI in ways that they haven't before. So with Contentize, you're doing that because you're allowing people to generate all these articles, like a massive number of articles or product descriptions or whatever that they've never been able to do. And that strikes me as pretty hard to do because you need to be an AI expert mm-hmm. yourself or you need to hire AI experts and you've got to innovate. 
And the other usage of AI that I think is empowering for indie hackers and solo founders is using it kind of behind the scenes. So you're not providing an AI product to somebody else, but you're using an AI product, or maybe you're even building in-house tools to help you become much more efficient as a founder. And so you know, as a team of one, you can interview a thousand journal, a thousand founders or something, or as a team of one, like you can provide customer support to hundreds of users while you're coding your product at the same time. Which of these two paths do you think are more promising for indie hackers? Because I'm leaning towards the latter, that like, if you really want to take advantage of AI, you should be using it behind the scenes. Definitely. I mean, probably the second one, because especially, you know, like, uh, I think we're going to the world of no code or at least minimal code where you can do, you can implement a lot of things without actually knowing how to code. And you can just by connecting various APIs, maybe uh, adding some kind of a layout on top of that, you can quickly build new solutions, uh, which would cost you thousands of hundreds of dollars before. And right now they cost you couple of hundreds, maybe at most, like just just dollars or even less than that, because it's just connecting different APIs. It's super important to actually try and understand what people might uh, expect and then give them that solution. So give me an example of some of these APIs you can use or ways that you can use uh, artificial intelligence to make yourself more efficient as a founder and avoid right. doing a lot of repetitive tasks. Right. So for example, so so... The product that I've discovered just lately uh, and is built by another solo founder is uh, N8N. Uh, that's uh, done by a N8N.io. That's a that's a product done by a one solo founder from Berlin, and he recently secured the founding. So the thing, the whole thing is growing. It's already pretty popular within the dev community. What it does is it's basically like Zapier on steroids. So it allows you to connect various of like uh, Google Sheets with email, with like Airtable, with like a couple of other stuff. Super simple to use. Uh, you have to code, but just a little bit uh, to, to start using that. But it can really save you a lot of time, especially as like a solo founder, because for example, you could, if you're running a blog on WordPress and maybe publishing some kind of, I don't know, like you want to have statistics about your blog post, then you can connect WordPress to Google Sheets to email. And suddenly if there's some, you hit some major milestone, you get a trigger on your email saying that, hey, you just got uh, 100,000 views. And then that's being written down in your Google Sheets where you monitor all your uh, all your statistics. So things like that, which would take you a lot of coding before, uh, you can do like basically with just a couple of clicks. So that's like one example of the productivity tool using heavily AI, actually AI-based. Another thing, which is pure AI, and it's, it's uh, great uh, to use is Lumen5 and Synthesia. So those are two other startups, I guess, both in more like computer vision. So what Lumen5 is doing is that you provide a script and analyzing this by analyzing the script, you get the whole video, for example, like an explainer video or like a sales pitch or something like that. And it literally takes like five minutes to create the whole video from your script. Of course, you can modify it later on the platform and stuff like that, but it just makes the whole process of building th things much faster. You know, like you don't have to spend money to actually build and explain your video. Of course, 
still, like if you have money to actually find a professional person to do every all, all the animations, do all the design, then that will be better in the end. But if you're on budget, if you're like a solo indie hacker and you just want, you just focus on the product, then that can save you both money and time to do that. Synthesia, on the other hand, is automated anchors uh, in the sense that you can create this virtual persona who will talk from the script. So you can just, again, like you submit your script and then you have someone AI-generated talk uh, in this artificial voice for your script. Uh, so quickly, you again have, you, you can have this whole staff of people uh, saying things on camera for your company. Those are like small things that add, add up together to something much bigger, uh, which is you can literally automate many of the things you're doing currently by one AI startup or another, or just like different solutions. And that, again, drives the, the cost of doing startups much lower. Yeah, I think this is, this is so cool. And you're thinking in a way that's very different than most people are thinking, because most people have never heard of these startups and they don't know this exists. And so when they go into a particular task, they don't think, well, let me first Google this to figure out if there's a, an AI startup that's got this you know, unlock. I don't have to make this video and AI can make you know, the video and I can just edit it. Or I don't have to write this article and AI can write this article for me and I can just come in and you know, sniff some things around and add some content and then it's done. And it's gotten me 90% of the way there and I just do the last 10%. And it's super cool that it's not all about just hacking things together yourself, but it's actually just about going out and paying for somebody else's product, which is usually pretty affordable and worth it. But let's say you want to actually compete with some of these bigger tech companies. Like one of the, the hot companies now is TikTok, obviously. And their entire main feed of all these funny videos and these posts people are making is kind of AI recommended. So you don't have to follow anybody. You don't have to subscribe to anybody. You just go on and they see all the videos that are, exist in the world. And they look at your viewing habits and basically recommend, okay, based on how much time you spent watching this post or which post you liked, here's what we're going to show you. Here's what you like. As an indie hacker, is it possible to build something that competes with that or that mimics that behavior in your app? Or is that still years away? No, no, that's not, so that's not possible. So, so I also won't lie about the fact that in some use cases, you won't be able to compete with the big players uh, because of the fact that some of those machine learning models take a lot of data that you won't have as an indie hack hacker. And on the other hand, it also takes a lot of capital uh, in terms of computing power. So probably to do something like TikTok that because they recommend their system is really great, really unique. You literally would like, you, you probably need to spend this couple of million of dollars uh, for the computing infrastructure, right. uh, not counting in the cost of like senior data scientists, machine learning engineers, and people like that around the whole thing. Uh, so no, so definitely that's not doable by indie hackers. GPT-3 is also probably not doable by indie hackers because of the size of the model, but there are ways to actually shrink it down and make it more affordable. But then you still have to be an expert in the field to do that. So it really depends. Like you don't, you oftentimes you won't be able to compete with those tech giants by going on a head-on battle who, who's got the better, better model because they will have more data, they will have more computing power than uh, you, and they could they can just keep on throwing resources at that particular problem. Uh, but what you can do is you can be smart about it. So, uh, and by being smart, I mean, you can find these different hacks and different uh, small things. Like for example, like generate this video by AI because you can use this startup technology and uh, use uh, technology from the other startup and then have this, 
it's kind of like suing your own solution from the what's mm. available on the market. And with that, you'll be much faster than any big company because, you know, like the whole process uh, for them is going through different decision makers. They have to design a budget. Then maybe until they start doing fa- things, it will take them a couple of months. And in a couple of months, you have you will have a perfectly working solution uh, suited from those different uh, pieces which are available uh, as open source, as, as other startups. I think that's the biggest advantage right now for indie hackers. You can be definitely much faster than any big company. And what do you think about the risks of AI? I mean, obviously, there's a lot in the movies and trending discussions about artificial general intelligence, which is this idea that we're going to create some actually intelligent machine and it's going to be like Terminator Judgment Day. It's going to attack us and we've got to worry about yeah. that. But yeah. even <laughs> even besides that, just the democratization of relatively dumb AI, really specific tools that just do exactly what you tell them, is still pretty risky in my eyes because it's enabling people to do things they just never could do before. So you could put out a million articles right now, which also implies that you could you know, create a million bots on Twitter that all... you know look like humans and act like humans, but are really just bots, you know, influencing a particular political opinion, etc. This has been a problem since 2016, when people weren't even really using bots to do this, they were paying people to do this. But now it's in the hands of an average person who's got a few hundred bucks to generate this kind of content. What do you think this means for the world? Should people be worried? Or is it is it really an overblown fear? Yeah, I think it's, it's a valid question. And we should fear, but we also should think about solutions. And because in the end, AI is just a tool. And it's like a knife that you can use to cut vegetables or kill a person. So ideally, you would have some kind of regulations which would limit uh, how AI can be used in those cases, or at least some tools to prevent those especially harmful behaviors. So I think t- especially Twitter and other social medias are getting better with catching bad players, like catching people who actually want to spread misinformation uh, or like buy political ads. But on the other hand, it's not going fast enough uh, so that it won't catch everyone. And especially bad players who have more budget, more capital to hire people to do really bad things, they can still do that. So I wouldn't be scared of like average people doing really bad stuff for like fun or whatever is the reason, but still like organized groups of people with access to capital and talent can do really bad things and they can do even worse things than before. So that's probably problematic. I mean, there was this great, uh, great uh, documentary on Netflix recently, The Social Dilemma. Yeah, uh, I watched it. Touched upon, yeah, so that touched upon this subject. But I think it's just like the beginning of the how we treat social media and like general direction. Because I think like we're still early in the process, even when it comes to the internet and how we deal with, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and other other social media. Like, how can we get off these things so that we don't lose all our time watching something uh, on Netflix, YouTube, scrolling through different social media feeds? Like, how how do we limit those things? Because I think that's like that's the bigger discussion. Because in order to limit and prevent the harmful behaviors and how harmful usage of AI, you have to limit how we spend time with electronics, internet. Yeah, I think the social dilemma in particular was fascinating because, you know, there's this question of, okay, what what about bad actors who use these huge platforms and who might use AI to influence public opinion on these platforms? But then there's the flip side, 
What about the platforms themselves? What's stopping Facebook itself from using artificial intelligence to radicalize people, maybe even unintentionally, right? Or to waste tons of people's time getting them to scroll feeds and, and look at ads. And then on top of that, you've got this present unbundling of these bigger social networks where we're kind of seeing the rise of smaller communities. So Andy Hackers is an example, but there's all sorts of yep. uh, communities that aren't necessarily run by these huge companies that are run by people who have small, smaller budgets. And as more and more people move to these communities, what kind of defense do they have against bad actors? If a country decided they wanted to build you know, a ton of AI to flood all these smaller communities with you know, all sorts of like fake opinions and posts, like, do these companies have the resources to build a counter AI? So I think it's a pretty fascinating problem. And in some sense, almost seems like sci-fi. But I think it'll be the reality in another year or two, probably. Yeah, I think it's super interesting what you just said about the smaller uh, communities because I haven't thought it about about it this way. Meaning that there's like you know like there's a lot of discussion about how Facebook is bad and like we should go out and like maybe maybe go to something smaller. But then on the other hand, Facebook gives you also the protection. Like it harnesses your data and it's of course it's, it's like tries to monetize you because your data is valuable and he try it tries to monetize. On, on your actions but on the other hand it also gives you protection from really bad actors from like spamming behaviors and stuff like that uh, to the extent to the extent it can but with smaller communities you don't have this protection at all yeah so we'll see what happens there this is all fascinating stuff and i would love to have you back on the show at some point in the future to give us an update on the state of ai and how indie hackers can take advantage of it but for now uh you know you've gone through a lot of stuff you started a few companies that failed. You started a few companies that seemed to really be taken off. What's your advice for other indie hackers who are listening in, who are trying to just figure out how to get ahead, come up with ideas, and start their own profitable internet business? So I think that the crucial thing is persistence and passion for what you're doing. So those two things. Uh, so basically, you should work on something which gives you a lot of fun, a lot of pleasure on a daily basis, uh, because probably you'll be grinding a lot. Uh, and even if things fail and if you if you lose money time then you should still have pleasure and fun working on a particular project and then take your time i mean it takes it takes really a lot of time to do great things and build great products i love that combination of of persistence and passion because i think if you're passionate about something but you're not persistent then you're just going to try one idea and it's going to be your passion project and when it fails that's going to be it but the reality is if you're going to go passion first, like it might take you several shots because you're really focusing on what you like, but you also need to do what the market likes. And so you might need to keep doing it until you find the one that works. And I've talked to so many founders who've, who've operated that way. Peter Levels with his 12 startups in 12 months, he was always working on cool things that he liked, but it took him like a bunch of months to find one that actually hit off. And he wasn't afraid to sort of, you know, cut the cord on one, but he was yeah. persistent and he kept going with another. Or Tobias French Schneider, who always works on like little passion projects that he thinks are interesting. And guess what? Like a lot of times the rest of the world doesn't care. They don't think it's interesting. But because he's combining that passion with also persistence and releasing lots of different things, eventually he hits on something that works. And then he's in this great spot where he gets to work on something that he both loves and that the world loves and is willing to pay for, uh, just like you are. So I think that's great advice. Thank you. No, I really think like, Persistence is key here because, as you said, like if you have just passion, it's not enough to actually build anything and see the traction. All right, Premik, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for enlightening us as to the state of AI and what's going on and what's possible, really, for people to do. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about what you're up to at Contentize and Petacrunch and anything else you might have going on? 
Yeah, so thank you for the chat. That was really a pleasure. And to find me, uh, either you can go on LinkedIn and find me there, or you can go on Medium and find my articles there. So I think it's medium at p.hoyetsky, so that's my surname. Or you can just Google me and find all the resources there, I guess. All right, thanks again. Thank you very much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>